Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. I missed you last week. Appreciate Pastor Jason and Pastor Matt uh, covering the preaching responsibilities last week. Looks like we got a few folks that think they're too sweet this morning. Can't get out in the rain. I got news for them. But you do wonder what it says about us who braved the rain to make it as well, right? Genesis chapter 18 this morning. You know, before we jump in this morning, I want to I mention something I should have mentioned back uh, in the summer that I think we need to be reminded of, and that is this, that the overturn of Roe v. Wade was not, uh, it was a great battle victory, but it was not the end of the war. It wasn't the end. We can't sit back, we can't relax. And when I mention uh, the pro-life and pro-abortion issue, you understand I'm not talking about politics, about a moral issue and a spiritual issue and a biblical issue. And the reason it came to mind to me again this week was we were, uh, last week, Lynn and I were up in the Northeast and we were in the state of Vermont two or three days and hundreds and hundreds of yard signs around Vermont were talking about Article 22, which in Vermont is a ballot issue to codify the right to abortion at any time for any reason through the entire nine months of pregnancy. And Vermont's not the only state doing that. Also was reminded last week because there were several articles in the news about the arrest of some different uh, folks within the, the pro-life movement. Uh, people who um, over a year ago, perhaps, uh, I'll just give you one example. There's a group of 11 that a year ago uh, did a protest at a um, abortion mill in Tennessee. They were charged with misdemeanor trespassing. That was the end of it. Well, all of a sudden, about a year and a half later, the Department of Justice has decided to arrest all of those people on federal criminal charges. They face up to 11 months, or excuse me, 11 years in prison and $350,000 in fines. One of those was Chet Gallagher. You may remember Chet. He was with us in January of 21. He's a brother in Christ, a very faithful man. Uh, there were other arrests that were made in addition to that group of men who stood for life who heard that the federal government was now coming after them, who offered to go themselves and present themselves for arrest, but instead uh, the FBI surrounded their homes, burst in, in a raid. Uh, one man with 11 children present had five guns held to his head while he was arrested. These are peaceful, nonviolent people. So clearly the battle is not over, and you know as well as I do, Satan's not going to give up that easily. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I mention this this morning because I fear many in the pro-life community and many in the, in the pro-life community and many in the church feel like we've crossed the finish line. And we haven't. We, we can't relax. There's a lot more to do. There is a culture of death in our country. A culture of death. And it is demonic. Paul said, we don't battle flesh, we don't battle physical flesh and blood, but we battle demonic forces, spiritual forces of darkness. Now, it's easy for us in the state of Arkansas, we live in a state um, that has a very strong, very pro-life state government. We live in a state that has banned abortion. And it's really easy for us to think, well, we, we've done what we need to do, we've crossed the finish line, there's nothing more to do, but there's much more to do. When we talk about being pro-life, it's a lot more than just the baby in the womb. It's a lot more than just saving an unborn child. It includes the mother. 
includes all those connected with that pregnancy. We're about the mom as well. And our pregnancy resource centers, if anything, need more manpower and more financial support now that abortion has been outlawed in the state of Arkansas. There'll be more women in need, much greater need. I've been thrilled the last several weeks to receive um, letters, uh, requests for letters of recommendation from different uh, pregnancy resource centers because several of our members have volunteered to serve there. And that's exactly what needs to happen. We've got to help uh, more and more. We've got to continue to pray and speak truth into the culture of death. We, we can't stop. We've also got to continue to help women who've had an abortion. They're not the enemy. They're not the enemy. We need to help them. I'm so thankful that, that Lori Roush, one of our own members here at Geyer Springs, started an Arkansas chapter of Deeper Still, a ministry that focuses solely on helping men and women who've been through the trauma of abortion. And we need to do all we can to help those. So I just want to say this morning, to make sure we're all clear, now's not the time to sit back and declare victory. We are still in a great battle against the powers of darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. And we can't stop, and we can't give up, and we can't just relax and say, well, we, we got there, we're done. We're, we're not done, we're not done. Let's just pause for a minute. Would you, would you just pray with me? Father, I wanna confess this morning the sin of the church, and because it's the sin of the church, it's my sin as well, that we haven't done in, in years past all that we could do to create a culture of life and to speak life into a culture of death. God, I pray that you would forgive your church and forgive your people, and I pray that you would help us understand that now is not the time to back off, to stop, to relax. There's still many, many places in our nation that allow death of an unborn child, a child made in your image, right up to the point of birth. Father, there are people that we know and love, people like Chet, that are suffering at the hands of an unjust government simply for standing to protect life as you have called us to do. God, we pray for them. We pray that they would somehow find justice in this situation. And we pray that your grace and your peace and your provision would be over them as they walk through this time. Father, I pray for women who've gone through the trauma of abortion. Many of them not being told the truth. Many of them not understanding all that they were doing and all that was a part of that act. God, I pray that you would help us be a church that is so loving and so encouraging and so supportive that they would not be afraid to come and ask for help. Father, I pray for us as a church body, if we say that we are strongly pro-life, I pray that we would step into the gap where there are needs not being met for women in crisis pregnancies. Father, help us to be faithful to the task. Help us to truly be a people who are for life at both ends of the spectrum. But we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been on quite a journey uh, with Abraham, looking at a journey of faith. If you remember, we started in chapter 12. In chapter 12, he's called by God to leave his country. 
his people, his father's house, and to go, not knowing where. He's going to trust God with the destination. He's simply going to obey God and make the journey. And God promises that he will bless him and make him a great nation. In chapter 12, as Abram uh, uh, arrives in the land that God has promised, God appears to him and he shows him the land that his offspring will possess. And, and so we see that Abram began well in, in this journey of faith with the Lord, but, it, but his faith falters. In chapter 12, it's mentioned that there was a famine in the land. That was there in Canaan where Abram was at this time. And he worries about the provision for his family. And so he, he applies human insight to the problem. And without seeking the counsel of the Lord, he makes a decision to head down to Egypt where there is plenty. And while in Egypt, he trades his integrity for safety. And he makes a mess in Egypt because he failed to trust God. But God's not yet finished with Abram in spite of his falter in faith and his failure to trust. Chapter 13, Abram comes out of Egypt. He returns to the place in the land where he built that first altar near Shechem. And there he calls on the name of the Lord. He returns to his dependent relationship, his relationship of faith and, and trust in God. And after that, you see in chapter 14, that separation of Abram and Lot, Abram's rescue of Lot. In chapter 15, God again uh, comes to Abram to encourage him. He reminds him that the son that's been promised, the heir that's been promised will be his own son, will have his own DNA. And from that son, God will build a nation that will bless all the peoples of the earth. Chapter 15, God ratifies his covenant with Abram in that dramatic binding ceremony. Remember the animals were sacrificed and cut in half and laid on each side with a path in between. And God walks that sacrificial path and he obligates himself to the unconditional covenant with Abram. And then in chapter 16, after that incredible covenant ceremony, you see that Sarai comes up with the idea of the son being born through Hagar, her servant. She gives Hagar to Abram as, as a wife. And what we see is a human attempt to accomplish the purpose and the plan of God. And so Abram, again, has faltered in his faith. But God isn't finished with Abram. Chapter 17, last week, God once again appears to Abram. He refers to himself as God Almighty the all-powerful one, the sovereign one, the, the sufficient one, the one who will provide. He calls Abram to walk with him in relationship and, and to be blameless. He reminds Abram that the fulfillment of the covenant is totally on God himself. Five times in chapter 17, you see God saying, I will. And he calls Abram to believe that God will accomplish the humanly impossible. See, man's solution, Ishmael, required no faith. God's solution, Isaac, is a solution that comes by faith. And God's call to faith in the life of Abram is that he's to be certain about what he has not seen, to believe that God can accomplish what he has promised. And in chapter 17, you see that God changes the names of Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah as a continual reminder of what he's going to do. The name Abraham meaning the father of many and Sarah meaning princess, one from whom uh, kings will come. And finally in chapter 17, God calls Abram to obedience to the covenant by the sign of circumcision. Boy, it sure would have been a lot easier if that sign was something simple, right? Like shave your head, get a tattoo, pierce your ear, 
I'm sure Jason and Matt, they, they feel like I purposely scheduled the preaching schedule last week. I'm sure they would have enjoyed the sign being much simpler. But the thing about the sign was it was not intended to be a public declaration. It was intended to be a personal commitment that, that a man was making to a covenant that he didn't deserve. God's selection of Abram was just by grace. God's covenant with him was just by grace. And it's true for us as well. The, the act of circumcision was not going to make a man right with God. It merely reminded him that God gives grace to the undeserving and that grace is received by faith. What God wants today, what God is interested in today as he was in Abram's day is an, an inward commitment, a personal commitment, not the outward religious signs that, that we know and we can easily show so others can observe, but an inward commitment to our faith in the Lord and our trust in him. Well, that's, that's what we've seen so far, what we've covered so far in this journey. I wanted to review, and the reason I wanted to review is I thought it would be an encouragement um, to all of us. Sometimes we look at the heroes of faith and we think, well, they were, they were spiritual superstars. We look at people like uh, Abraham and we get the idea, well, his, his walk with God was perfect. God was able to use him because he never faltered. And that's clearly uh, not the case. Don't compare your spiritual journey to someone like Abraham and think, well, well compared to him, uh, I'm a spiritual wimp. I'm not usable to God. No, we've just seen, we just reviewed that Abram faltered. Abram got tired of, of waiting on God. He took matters in his own hands without seeking God. His faith was not always heroic, but God did not give up on him. He doesn't give up on us. The reason God didn't give up on, on Abram, on Abraham, was when he got out of step with God, when he relied on his own wisdom, when he faltered in the faith, God would come to him. And God would confront him, and God would correct him, and you always see that Abraham responded, and he repented, and he turned back to faith and to the plan and purpose of God. Abraham was just as frail as you and I are, but he had a heart for God. He wanted to walk with God by faith, and because of that, God declared him righteous. Not only that, in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41 and verse 8, God calls Abraham his friend. His friend. Listen, we've all faltered in our faith. We all will falter in our faith. You may be at the point that you're believing the lie because you have faltered. You're believing the lie that, that God is finished with you. And I want you to take courage this morning. I want you to be encouraged this morning from the father of faith, from the friend of God, that we all fall short. We all disobey. We all sin. If you aren't walking with God currently, if that's the, the situation you find yourself in this morning, just like Abram, you can choose to turn. You can choose to repent, to change course, and you will find the God of restoration, the God of second chances, or, or third or fourth chances, hasn't given up on you. That's the encouragement I want you to have from Abram's life this morning. Now, chapter 18, where we're going to dive back in. Let's look at verses 1 through 8 of Genesis chapter 18 this morning. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and the rest of yourselves and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent with Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took the curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So Abraham is resting at the entrance to his tent. It's the hot part of the day. Remember, he is at this point 99. So he's resting there in, in, a, in a cooler spot. And it says that three men appear. Now, the land where Abram is, Abraham is, is wide open. There are no uh, hindrances to his vision, no obstacles in the way. So these men, he didn't see them coming from afar off. Suddenly, there are three men standing in front of him. They appeared out of nowhere. Well, who, who are they? Where did they come from? Well, verse 1 says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, if you haven't heard this word before, this is what we would call a theophany. And it's from two Greek words, God and appear. It's, it's an appearance of God, an appearance in human bodily form. Likely, as often was, it's an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And it happened on several occasions to different people in the Old Testament. In fact, Abraham himself had, had an appearance of the Lord on at least two previous occasions. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, when, Abraham, when Abram arrived at Shechem in Canaan, the Lord appeared and told Abram he would give the land where Abram was standing and surrounding land to his descendants. God appeared. He was in a, in a bodily form that Abram could see. Genesis 17, last week, the Lord appeared to Abram, calling Abram to walk with him and reaffirming his covenant. Again, he appeared in a bodily form. And according to the context of chapter 18, and you see this all the way through chapter 18, one of these men was the Lord. The other two were likely angels. So it says that Abram, Abraham, well, I'm so tired of that confusion. This is Abraham. Abraham sees the men, and what does he do? He immediately runs out and bows down. Now, in the East, bowing before someone or bowing to someone is about like a handshake in the West, but you notice that Abraham bows to the earth. That means he bowed on his face to the earth. This is a display of honor. You don't usually give that kind of display of honor to strangers, so evidently Abraham recognizes who these men are, and he addresses one of the men as Lord. He asked them to stay, to, to wash their feet. That was a hospitality custom, to, to rest under the shade of the tree and to let him uh, give them, let them enjoy a meal. Well, hospitality in the East still today is a very sacred duty. It's an honor for people to express hospitality to you. I would experience this every time we would go to the Middle East to visit uh, Sarah and her family, that the people there were much, much more hospitable than we were accustomed to. I remember one, one uh, day I was sitting out on the sidewalk outside a little uh, tea shop getting some breakfast, and a man comes up and sits down, and, and he says, are you the father of uh, Brandon and Sarah? Now, um, that was a pretty easy deal for him because we're not in a tourist area. There are no other uh, white American-looking people in the place. We were it in that entire city. But he stayed. He talked to me. He bought my breakfast. Um, very hospitable people. Anytime you go into their home, there's always just a, a spread. And, and you didn't go to somebody's house just for a quick five-minute visit. So there's this hospitality culture, and Abraham is asking for the honor of showing hospitality to the Lord. 
He's asking for the honor uh, of blessing with hospitality the one who has blessed him so richly. And he's excited about it. You read the text and his excitement's obvious. He's rushing around. He's making sure the calf he's going to serve is tender and good. He, he sets the meal before them. And look at what he does while they eat. He stands. It's a picture of a servant ready to immediately respond to any need that the guests have. Abraham is so excited that the Lord would choose to visit with him. And as I read that, I thought, what a good reminder of what my response should be when I have opportunities to encounter the Lord. When I have opportunities to be in the, in the presence of the Lord, whether it's in my personal time or in, in corporate gatherings like this, we have the opportunity of encountering the Lord. How do we respond to that? I thought about his response of excitement and how David said it in the 100th Psalm in the fourth verse, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, give thanks and praise his name. And you could just kind of picture uh, back in, in those times in the Old Testament as the people would come to worship, they were probably singing and, and offering praise and offering thanks as they came into the presence of the Lord. By the way, even though Abraham and Sarah had servants that they could call on at any time for any need, you notice that Sarah made the bread, that Abraham selected the, the calf for his guests. He, he served his guests. They were personally involved in the act of hospitality. They didn't have to lift a finger. They didn't have to do anything, but they wanted to be involved in the act of hospitality. It made me think about my worship of the Lord, especially when we gather here. Do I, do I kind of sit back and let the worship leaders take care of everything for me? Am I just a, an observant? Or am I personally engaged in offering myself to the Lord when I come into the Lord's presence? Well, moving on in, in chapter 18, look with me in verses 9 through 15. The men have eaten, they've enjoyed the meal. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased with Sarah. So she laughed to herself. Now don't judge her. Abraham laughed last week, right? She laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too, too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, if there's any question, if, if there had been any question in Abraham's mind as to the identity of his guest, the inquiry about Sarah should have removed all doubt. Why is that? Well, they ask, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, Abraham had to be thinking, these men are not from around here. If they were around here, I, I would know them. So how did they know Sarah's name? Well, maybe stories had gotten around about Abram's rescue of Lot and his defeating of those enemy forces. Maybe as the stories got around about this great warrior, Abram, maybe it was mentioned he had a wife named Sarai, but they didn't ask where Sarai was. They asked, where is Sarah. They called her by her new name, known only to Sarah and Abraham 
and God. If he didn't know before, he certainly knows now these are not ordinary men. They are messengers from God. And so they ask, where is Sarah? And, and at this point, Abraham does something very wise. He replies, she is in the tent. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't, he didn't add any detail. He figures it's probably a good time just to be quiet and to listen. And there's a great lesson in that. That's usually a very wise thing to do when we have an encounter with the Lord. Not to talk as much as we listen to what he has to say. Well, God had promised Abraham nearly 25 years before this appearance that he would have a son, that he would have numerous descendants, that he would be a, a great nation. There hadn't been details on how that was going to take place. There was no indication of timing. But now after all those years of waiting, nearly 25 years of waiting, and all the missteps and all the fumbles on the part of Abram and, and, and Sarai, these messengers come, they tell Abraham, the time is now appointed, within a year, Sarah is going to have a son. Well, Sarah's in the tent, she's out of sight, but she's listening. Remember that, men, she's listening. What does she do? She, she laughs. Now, notice this, this is really important. She doesn't laugh out loud, she laughs to herself inwardly. And you look at, if you look at her musings in verse 12, her, her thoughts, this is not a joyous or excited laughter. This is almost a bitter laugh. It's too late. That's, that's not going to happen. It's, it's a laugh of doubt. Now watch this. Don't miss this. This is funny. This is funny. Sarah's laughter and her statements of doubt are internal. She doesn't laugh out loud. But look at verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she question her ability to bear a child? Because she is old. Sarah, verse 15, she hears the Lord repeat her thoughts, and she's afraid, so she says, I didn't laugh. Now, I don't know, but I got to imagine after the visitors left and Abraham went back to the tent, I got to imagine they had a conversation kind of like this, where Abraham says to Sarah, seriously? The Lord read your mind and then you lied to him? It's a good reminder for us that nothing is hidden from God, not even our thoughts. There's no, no purpose, no point in, in hiding from him because he knows everything about us. We'd, we would do well to remember David's testimony in the 139th Psalm. Look at the first four verses of the 139th Psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Look at this. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Well, that can make or ruin your day, can it? God knows your very thoughts. He knows before you even speak a word. When understand, we do need to understand Sarah's perspective just a bit. She knew about the covenant with Abraham. I'm sure before they ever left Ur, he had to explain to her why they were leaving, what they were doing. So she knew about the covenant. And Abraham likely, through all these encounters we've seen that he's had with the Lord, he has probably told her about those encounters with the Lord through the years of the journey. But she's now hearing the promise of an heir from her own body directly from the Lord. But she still has a hard time believing it, even though she's hearing it with her own ears. 
I mentioned Sarah's first direct encounter with the Lord to bring this observation to light. The more time you spend encountering the Lord, the more time you spend in communication with the Lord, the more time you spend tuning your ear to the voice of the Lord, the stronger your faith becomes. Abraham is finally getting it, but he's had all of these experiences with the Lord. And the more time you spend before the Lord, the more time you spend in communication with him, the more time you spend listening to him, the more time you spend learning about him and, and understanding him, the deeper your trust is in the sovereignty, sovereign, sovereignty and sufficiency of God. It comes through time spent with him. Well, you see the question the Lord asks, it's the question for Sarah, the question for us, is anything too hard for the Lord. Listen, if there is anything too hard for the Lord, he isn't the Lord. He isn't a sovereign God. We have no hope. If anything is too hard for the Lord, we have no hope. Because if anything too is too hard for the Lord, he certainly couldn't have done the thing that above all things demonstrated his sovereignty and sufficiency, and that is raising the Lord Jesus from the dead. That's where our hope is based. If he can do that, nothing is too hard for God. Listen, what's happening with Abraham and Sarah is not, not on the level of the virgin birth, but is certainly a significant miracle that a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are going to have a baby. Nothing's too hard for God. Is a dysfunctional marriage or a, a dysfunctional family too hard for God to change? Is a financial situation or, or need too hard for God to meet? Is there a physical condition beyond his ability to heal? Is the will of a prodigal too hard for him to break? Is the heart of an unbeliever so cold that it's beyond his warming touch? No. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing in my life is too hard for God. Would you, that are gathered here in the worship center, repeat that with me? Nothing in my life is too hard for God. Say that. Nothing in my life is too hard for God. You that are in the venue and, and online, would you say that with me? Nothing in my life is too hard for God. Let's all repeat that again together here and in the venue and online. Nothing in my life is too hard for God. Nothing. Look with me, we've got to, got to wrap up this chapter. Look down in verses 16 through 21. The visitors finish eating, they finish delivering their message, they head towards Sodom. A Abraham, Abraham goes with them part of the way, that's part of the hospitality. He walks along with them part of the way. And as they're walking, you have this, this soliloquy. We're hearing the Lord's internal thoughts. Now, does God have internal conversations, dialogues with himself? No. Um, this is what's called anthropomorphism. It's a literary device. It portrays God in human terms for our benefit and for our understanding. So it's as if God, we're, we're getting insight into the thoughts of God as they walk along. God is considering telling Abraham his plan regarding the destruction of Sodom. Why, why would he tell Abraham? This is what you get from the, from the internal dialogue with God. Why would he do that? Well, because Abraham is his friend. Abraham is, is obedient. He's close to the Lord. He's the one chosen by God to fulfill the promise of a people who are going to bless all nations. In fact, if you look at verse 19, there's this incredible contrast of Abraham with the inhabitants of Sodom. God says about Abraham, I have chosen him 
so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised. And so here's Abraham, this man of of righteousness and and justice, and Sodom is the antithesis of what is right and just. There's this atrocious um, sexual behavior and all other kinds of forms of depravity in Sodom. Now, God says he's going to go down and and check it out. Did he really need to go down and see what they're doing? No, God's omniscient. God already knew what what was happening in Sodom. He knows everything. Nothing is is hidden from him. He says that. He tells Abraham that. That's for his benefit and ours. It makes very clear that God's judgment is based on full and accurate information. He doesn't just judge randomly and harshly for no apparent reason. It's, it's also a message when God says he's going to go down and, and, and check. It's also a message about God's personal involvement in the affairs of men. Verse 20 says there was this outcry. The outcry from Sodom was from those who were oppressed and abused and, and brutalized. God was attentive to their needs. So the balance of chapter 18, you're probably familiar with the story, has Abraham standing before the Lord, making a plea for the righteous who who might be in Sodom. You know, because Abraham has a close relationship, because he's a friend of God, he feels somewhat comfortable asking God, is there another way? Could the city be spared, he asks the Lord, if there are 50 righteous people living there? Now, this conversation with the Lord is more for Abraham's benefit. It's not going to change the heart and mind of God. God knows exactly how many righteous people are in Sodom. And again, he's sending the two angels to make it clear for the human record that the reason he destroyed the city was it was completely immoral. There was beyond any possibility of repentance occurring in Sodom. That's why he destroyed the city. The more Abraham thinks about Sodom, you'll notice in the text, the more he thinks about Sodom, the lower he makes his estimate, his request. What about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? I'm thinking by this point, Abraham is probably trying to run the totals in his head. Let's see, Lot and his wife, their two daughters, their two fiancés. You know, Lot's a pretty wealthy man at this point. He's probably got some some household servants. Surely there are maybe four household servants who who are righteous, If not, surely besides Lot and his household, maybe there's one other righteous household in the city. So he asked God, will you spare the city if there are just 10? 10 in an entire city. We we don't know how big Sodom was. We know in the the whole plain in that area, all of those cities, there were probably a half million people, but it would not have been uncommon or far-fetched to think that Sodom might be a city of somewhere between 25 and 50,000, and God is willing to spare the city, a city that size, for just 10 righteous people. A few righteous people can preserve a society. That's an important word for us today and in the days ahead. A few righteous people may be vastly outnumbered, but God can still use them to preserve a society. Unfortunately, we will discover in chapter 19 there were not even 10. And the judgment of Sodom was just, it was thorough. 
And you can't help but wonder when you read about Sodom and what was happening in Sodom and the judgment of the Lord coming on Sodom, you can't help but wonder why our nation and other nations have not experienced that same wrath from God. Why does he wait? He waits because just as those righteous people can preserve a godless society, those righteous people can help some of the unrighteous, some of the ungodly come to faith and redemption in Christ. God, God longs for every man and every woman and every boy and every girl to repent and turn to him. And, and there is time while he waits, but one day time is going to run out. There'll be no more time, no more opportunity. And no sin is going to go unpunished and no evil is going to escape judgment. And as we think about Abraham's appeal for Sodom, his intercession for Sodom, his desire that people be spared, it's a reminder to us that we're to be interceding, we're to be intervening, we're to be concerned about those who don't know Christ.